I'm going to pray in a second, but I, I just, again, want to take the opportunity to stand in front of you and, and, and say two quick things. One, I, 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 we need to appreciate and continually thank and commend the folks who come up here and lead us in worship each Sunday, because it's a wonderful gift that we have as a church. And secondly, I can't help but talk about the ministry of music in our hearts at times. That There are moments in our lives where things are going on and there's nothing that is really able to encapsulate what it is we're thinking or the truth that it is that we're experiencing. And I was overwhelmed this morning with these words, you plead my cause and right my wrongs. You've broken my chains and overcome. You give me life. You gave your life to give me mine. How can that possibly be? Let's pray together. Come. God, I am amazed this morning at what it means to have life. Not, not just breath in my lungs and a beating heart, although the, that is part of it, but God, to have have this gift that you have given to me, because God, I didn't give it to myself. This precious gift of life, knowing that I stand before God justified and redeemed and righteous. God, I thank you for the finished work of Christ, because it's only in him that any of that's true. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity you've given to us this morning to stop and to reflect to look at your word and to see what it has for us. God, I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and, and, and set a guard on them, cause them to speak truth even when I'm going the wrong way. Lord, I, I pray that each one of us this morning, and, and God, it starts with me, would understand what it means to be obsessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be overwhelmed with the freedom we have from the chains that held us. May we be overwhelmed with the life that is not ours, though it was death that was ours. Lord, speak to our hearts. Change us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Acts, Acts chapter 5. <laughs> Acts chapter 5. A couple of you are like, how are you this morning? I'm like, I'm pumped up, which that's not good news, because most Sundays I'm pretty mellow. So, Acts chapter 5. So, I'm just going to dive right in so that we can get there uh, this morning. Um, make sure you're, you're, um, you're locked in quick because this isn't going to be as long as a normal message. Right. Somebody asked me this week out of the goodness of their heart, I'm like, we got to do something like in less than five minutes. And somebody looked at me and like, dude, can, can you do anything in five minutes? Nah. It's impossible. So we're going to see how this goes, okay? So Acts chapter 5 is, is really this moment in the history of the early church where you're seeing not necessarily a transition, but a, a continuation of things that we've already talked about previously, particularly in Acts chapter 4. You remember Acts chapter 4, um, Peter and John had been um, arrested for healing a lame man, and they stood boldly before the chief priests and preached the gospel, and then they, they went back to their friends after they had been threatened and told, don't do that anymore. No more healing, no more preaching. So they went back to their friends, and they, they prayed, and they confessed that God was the God who created everything. God was the God who, in, in layman's terms, he, he called his shot. He, he said this was going to happen, and indeed it did. 
God was the sovereign God who was in control of, of everything that was happening. And, and in the middle of that, they didn't pray that God would change their circumstances, but that God would make them bold. And that they would run out of the place of meeting, regardless of any of the threats that were waiting for them at the bottom of the hill, and they would go with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and hold nothing back. Okay? And so as they, they ran down the hill, that's what continued to happen, and that caused this beautiful unity and this beautiful care among the family of God. You look at the end of chapter four and it talks about how there was a, a number of those people who continued to be together and they had everything in common. And there wasn't a needy person among them, not because there were no needs among them, but because in fact the people who owned land would sell the land, they would bring the money, they would lay it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would give to those people within their church family, within the family of God, who were in times of great need. It was the original caring fund. Okay, and that's, that's what was happening, and it continued. And the end of, of chapter four ends with the testimony of this man named Barnabas, whose name means the son of encouragement, who went and sold the field and he brought the money and he brought it to the apostles' feet. So there's great momentum. There's incredible enthusiasm among the people of God. And so when there's enthusiasm and momentum, it is our nature to, to, to do one of two things, I think. One is, man, I want in. I want to be a part of some of the great things that are happening. And, and so let me kind of flash ahead to our meeting at 1015, which you guys are like 1015, right? Like you're going to be quiet before then. But 1015, okay? There's some great things happening, and we're excited to share them with you and, 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 and pass them on to you and let you know what it is that God's doing. I'm, I'm, it's really a good thing. And so, so when those good things happen, the, there's one of two responses. One is, I want on, I want in, let me be a part. The other is, I don't know if I necessarily want in, but I want everybody else to think that I'm in. And so Acts chapter 5, the very beginning, what you get is a story of a couple who wasn't exactly all in. And that's not the point of this morning, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. I'm just going to kind of briefly touch on what the story is. You've got the, the man Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and they sell a piece of their property. And they, they take the money, the proceeds from the, the sale of their property, and they have this discussion at home, which is right and good. How much should we give? Well, let's give this much but they conspired together to say they were giving that much. And so when Ananias brought the offering to Peter's feet, the apostles' feet, which was the custom at the time, and to lay it there, Peter kind of goes at him and says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? That is Acts chapter 5, verse 4. You're not lying to man, you're lying to God. So just a, a couple of verses previous to that, Peter's very clear. The problem wasn't that they decided to keep some of the money for themselves. Peter's very clear. He says this in verse 3. He says, um, why has Satan filled your heart to the lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? In verse 4, while it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? It's your property. You could do whatever you want. Why did you decide to paint this face, this picture of you being such a sacrificial person and so on board that you're giving all the money of the sale and in fact you're holding some back and you're not giving all? And as soon as he said those words, it says, Ananias fell down, breathed his last. And I think this is an appropriate statement, the end of verse five, and great fear came upon all those who heard about it. Uh, I forgot to carry the one. I serious. I forgot to carry the one. 
I wasn't lying. (laughs) And as soon as he hits the ground, it says the young men rose up and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. And now three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes completely unknowing of what's going on. And she walks into the room and Peter's like, hey, can I ask you a question? Why, certainly. And he says, tell me whether you sold the land for that much. And Sapphira responds, yes, we sold the land for that much. And Peter's response is, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who just buried your husband are standing at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she breathed her last she fell dead. And I'm sorry, not a time for humor, but it is kind of funny that as soon as she dies, the young men come in and they find her dead. They've got to be thinking, oh, seriously? They wrap her up. They carry her out. They bury her. And it says that fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard those things. There is so much to dive into that story, but, but suffice it to say this. It wasn't about... Um, keeping money for themselves. It wasn't about taking care of their own needs. What it was about was being inauthentic, being deceitful, saying I'm all in, but holding back. Which is interesting is it sets the context for what happens in the rest of chapter 5 because immediately after that we're told that the momentum continues in verse 12. There's a lot of signs and wonders that are being done among the people by the hands of the apostles and and nobody else really wanted to jump in with them because they were afraid but when they became believers they were all in and then verse 14 even, and sorry, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. I don't have time for this but I cannot help but say it. The message that was being preached by the apostles was not a social gospel. It wasn't a prosperity gospel. The message being preached by the apostles, plain and simple, was this. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is who he said he was. The Son of God come down to be the ransom for many. That's the message that was being preached and was being accepted by men and women who were regularly being added to the church. Now, such momentum was happening that it became kind of like the 1960s with the Beatles. Okay, what? Understand this. So when the Beatles showed up in America and they tried to walk down the street, what happened? Mobs and mobs of people just, just surrounding them. John, Ringo, Paul, and the other guy who just pretended to be a Beatle. Um, which I can make fun of the Beatles. I wasn't even alive yet, so I can make fun of them. But anyway, the, those guys, they're surrounded by, and you've got the pictures, the old picture of the screaming girls grasping their face and shaking their knees. <laughs> and it seems pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? But when there's that, that some of you are like, it wasn't ridiculous. <laughs> I get it, it's cool, whatever. I'm on to you. <laughs> um, but what's happening in that moment is there is such enthusiasm about Peter and the apostles and, and not just their message, but their ability to heal, that they're crowding around them. And they're, it says they're carrying their sick out on cots and mats. And they're laying them in the street, kind of trying to guess, which way is Peter going to walk? Okay, he's coming down this way. Let's lay Billy in the street here, hoping that Peter would walk by and his shadow would fall on him and heal him. Now, let me be clear. It doesn't say his shadow healed anybody. Just, just want to be clear about that. Nowhere does it say his shadow healed anybody. It really is just a picture of that was the enthusiasm that was going. However, the next verse says, verse 16, the people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That's where the healing was, okay? 
And it wasn't just healing for the sake of healing. It was healing accompanying the message of the gospel to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. To, to authenticate the message of the apostles as God had given it to them. So momentum is continuing. And verse 17, it, we're told this. The high priest rose up and all that her with him were with him, sorry, that is the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. They put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, you go and you stand in the temple and you speak to the people all the words of this life. And so they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. It's very interesting. The leadership was very jealous of the success that the apostles were having with the people. And so they arrested them. Now, as you see, they didn't stay arrested very long. An angel shows up, releases them, and says, go get them. And so first thing in the morning, they show up at the temple, and they begin to teach and preach the words of this life. And then it gets a little funny. The next morning, the end of verse 21 says this, when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to prison to have them brought. So picture this. This is as pomp and, 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 and pious and, and, and very formal as it would get at this time. The Sanhedrin has gathered. They've taken their seats. You know, their handlers are like, you sit there, you sit there, here's, here's your talking points. They've been read in what's happening. And they say, now, I want you to go get the prisoners. And so the guards leave their presence to bring the prisoners and set them before the Sanhedrin to begin this public trial. Verse 22. When the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and they reported this. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened the doors, we found nobody inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. So, I didn't hide it very well. I love that last phrase. So they come back from prison, they're like, guys aren't there anymore. Everything's locked up as tight as it can be, but they're not there. And you've got the Sanhedrin sitting there, the chief priest sitting there, you can sense them stroking their beards. Hmm, I wonder what this is. And you got some one little guy wondering what this would come to. He's sitting in the corner. He's like, <laughs> that can't be good. <laughs> and sure enough, verse 25, someone came and told them, look. Okay, that's weird. Behold, it's a little strange. You're not going to believe this. That's our vernacular. The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The captain with the officers went and he brought them, but not by force because they're not dumb and they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So now instead of, they, they find out they're preaching in the midst of all these people in the temple, the captain and the guard go, they see all the apostles and they kind of put their arms around them. I'm like, can you, can, you, can you come here for just a couple minutes? Can we, can we have a conversation? We, let's just go, no big deal. Kind of walk them off and bring them to the the midst of the Sanhedrin, so they can have this quick discussion with the leaders that are there. Verse 27, when they brought them in, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them and said this, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. 
You remember that, chapter 4? Okay. But here you are, and you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. There is some severe unhappiness. Didn't we tell you? I thought we warned you. And then you said, well, we can't help but speak of those things that we've seen and heard. And then we warned you again. And yet here you are speaking again. And you intend to bring bring this man's blood upon us. Which is interesting that they're really worried about that. And yet go back just about two months. Matthew chapter 27 is the, the crowd being led by these men standing at the, and I picture it as the stairs, as Pilate stands before them with, with Barabbas and Jesus. He says, who, who should I release to you, Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the, the murderer, or Jesus, who's called the Christ? We want Barabbas. What? Wait, hold on. What evil has he done? Crucify him. And what does Pilate say? I, I am innocent of this man's blood. What does the crowd shout back? Let his blood be upon us and our children. And here we are less than three months later. You're trying to make it our fault. Yeah, interesting. Peter, who stands before the council, makes it very clear to them. We must obey God, verse 29 We must obey God rather than men. I mean, there's no question in Peter's mind, hey, 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 my allegiance is to him, not to you. He has told us to be witnesses of all that we've seen and heard. I cannot help but speak of the things that I've seen and heard. I will stand before him one day, so I must obey God rather than men. And then there is this amazing moment where Peter launches into the gospel again. He did it in chapter 2. He did it in chapter 3. He did it in chapter 4. Here he is doing it again in chapter 5, and this one, out of all the presentations of the gospel that he's given, is by far the shortest. It's less than 35 words in the original language. And yet he preaches the gospel in less than 35 words, which, which kind of points, you don't need three points in an illustration to present the gospel. Peter does it very effectively here, and here's what he says, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him and raised him up at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. He says, and listen, guys, we're, we're witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit to God, whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter presents the gospel just kind of walks through it. There's a lot of ways to present the gospel. One of the application points in your bulletin this week is, is really simple. It's at the very bottom, and it says, okay, so, so what is the gospel? Write out your definition right here, because it's vitally important that each one of us understand what the gospel actually is. We can talk about being a gospel-centered church. We can talk about living a gospel-centered life, but if you don't know what the gospel is, that, that, then how, how does that work? So, so what I want to do this morning, I'm going to give you, there's a bazillion of them out there. Here's just one. I'm going to throw it up on the screen here. This one outline that will help guide your thoughts. And it goes through four points. And so it's, it's God, man, Jesus, and response. God, man, 
Jesus and responds. And what's interesting, now I'm sure Peter wasn't standing before them like, all right, now I gotta walk through God, man, Jesus responds, here it goes. But if you look at, at Peter's presentation, you see all four of those aspects in his 35 word or less presentation of the gospel. So how does that equal the gospel? Let me, let me explain it to you. This is just one. Again, there's a lot of them out there. This is just one. So, so you begin, you can't, okay. The good news cannot be declared unless there is a good God. And so at the very beginning of the declaration of the gospel, it's saying this, God is good. God is the creator. He has created everything we've seen. God has regularly cared for his people. He created us in his own image, and he loves us. And because he created us, he owns us. God isn't just this, this, this nebulous thing that we think of like the force from Star Wars. No, God is holy. God is just. God is God. Man is not. As awesome and holy as God is, man is perhaps the exact opposite. Man in his sinfulness continues to worship another. God is the only one deserving of worship and yet man continues to find ways to worship anything, everything else, including themselves. And so we, we need to be careful that we understand that man is a sinner. Each one has rejected God. Each one has been the creature rebelling against the creator. That's not good news. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus Christ. Jesus, the chosen one, the Messiah, that is what the Christ means. Jesus Christ came. God himself put on humanity to lay down his life to pay for the sins of those who rebel against him. Jesus Christ laid himself out on the cross for you. He took your pain. He took your shame. He took your guilt. He took the full wrath of God in his body on the cross for you. For who? For any who would respond in repentance. For any who would turn from sin and trust in Jesus and in nothing else and no one else to save them from the coming judgment. See, the, the, the response that is, is necessary for us is taking God at his word. One illustration of it is this. As, a, as your children are, are just learning how to swim and they're kind of on the edge of the swimming pool and you're waiting for them to jump into the pool to you. Don't worry, I'll catch you. I'll catch you. You just come on, just jump. And you watch your little one like, all right, now hold on. I know this man. I, I saw him drop my older brother. I want no part of this. And they walk away from the doctor. No, come here, come here. I will catch you. And so they, they get to the edge, and, and after bribes and other means of trying to get them in, one of our kids, it was mom pushing them from behind when they weren't looking. See, you all think Stephanie's so innocent, but no. Okay, so anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so there I am. I'll catch you, I'll catch you. And then, oh, and then I catch them. Now, it ain't pretty. There's some sputtering and coughing and flailing, and I, 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 I survive. <laughs> I, I <laughs> but there's that moment where they decide they're going to take me at my word, and they step off the dock. That's the response. When you take God at his word, when he says, any man who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's salvation in no other There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. 
Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him. And so God, man, Jesus responds. You see Peter do that. The God of our fathers, he's talking about their ancestors. So he's talking about the creator God, the holy God, Yahweh, the one they worshiped regularly, the one who led them out of Egypt. He says, the God of our fathers, he raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. There's the man. You, you killed Jesus. You rejected the, the innocent lamb of God. Jesus God exalted him. God has raised him to his right hand. As, and, and some translations have prince. Some have leader. He is the one, he's the first fruits of our salvation. He was the first one raised, which means guess who's second fruits? Praise God, that's us. Someday we will be with him and be like him as he is in heaven for all of eternity. If you would respond with repentance and accept the forgiveness of sins. Peter can't help but speak about Jesus being the Christ. It just comes out of him. He is obsessed with Jesus. He is obsessed with the message of the gospel. He is obsessed with telling everyone that he comes into contact with, even the people who can have him killed. He's obsessed with sharing the good news. And they hated it. They hated it. They weren't, and again, it's Peter. This is the Apostle Peter, and he's sharing the good news. They weren't like, oh, amazing, and then there was this mass revival among the Sanhedrin. It wasn't that at all. They hated it. Verse 33, when they heard his message, they were furious. They were enraged. They wanted to kill them. There's one guy sitting on the, the council named Gamaliel who's got his head on straight, he says, guys, listen, I'm going to paraphrase just for time's sake. He says, guys, listen, if, if this is from God, you're never going to stop it. Never. If it's man, let it be. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to fizzle out. But if this is from God, you can't stop it. And if you tried to stop it, be careful, because you might actually be fighting against God. And that doesn't end well. So let's let it be. Let's not continue here. And so they listen to Gamaliel, verse 39. They take his advice, which is funny how they take his advice. Look at verse 40. When they called in the apostles, they beat them. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. That beating that the apostles received wasn't kind of like, you know, one of those slaps upside the back of the head. This was 40 lashes save one. That's being whipped with instruments of, of torment 39 times. And then they were released. Then they were let go. How, how did they react? Verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left their beatings feeling honored that they were dishonored. They left that moment thinking, look, look, we have done something right because the people who hate God and hate Jesus hate me. I've done something right. I, they have a completely different perspective than I have most days. But they left rejoicing, rejoicing, celebrating 
singing good worship music, lifting their hands high and saying, we have been counted worthy to suffer the disgrace of Jesus. Is that how you feel? Is that how you feel when you you get the, the courage, the boldness to open your mouth for Jesus and somebody looks at you funny? Do you leave that interaction like, yes! I don't mean they look at you funny because you stand up in the middle of the aisle on a bus and start preaching as loud as you can when 30 people are like, what, what's going on, huh? You should get looked at funny if, that, if you're doing that, okay? But, but when you, you build a relationship with somebody and you sit down over coffee with them, like, hey, can I, can I tell you something? Can I share with you something? You know, do you know what the, the meaning of joy really is? Joy is knowing that there is no punishment coming. That's how perfect love casts out fear. Fear is only in punishment. So, so this joy that I have is a result of knowing that I'm going to stand before God and it's going to go well. And the only reason it's going to go well is not because I'm a good person. I'm a lousy person. I sin all the time. But I have an amazing Savior. And his name's Jesus. And I would love to answer your questions about him. And they look at you and go, yeah, I just want a coffee. Do you leave that interaction like, yes! The apostles did. They had been threatened again to not speak in the name of Jesus. They had beaten. They left. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be beaten. And then they went back to their homes. And they're like, oh, I'm going to let this settle a little bit. I'm going to heal up. I'm going to rest. I'm going to keep my mouth shut, right? Verse 42, and every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Nothing stopped them. Nothing stopped them. Do you know why? Because they were obsessed with the gospel. They had an understanding of what the gospel meant for them and for everyone. They were obsessed with the gospel and they couldn't stop. So church, what if? What if you were obsessed with the gospel message? And let me, let me be clear, not just preaching the gospel message but understanding the gospel message. There's no good news in the gospel message if you've forgotten how dark it was before Jesus came. Do, do, you, do you remember regularly what it is that he saved you from? He didn't take you from a B and move you to an A. He took you from skipping school and put you on the dean's list. He crossed from death to life. That's what Jesus did for you. Have you lost sight of what it is that Jesus has done for you? Because if you remember what it is that happened in your life that day when justice, the understanding that God rightly should judge me, and mercy, understanding that Jesus came and died for me, even though I don't deserve that at all, when justice and mercy had this collision in your heart, do you remember that day? Because if you remember that day, If you remember that day, you won't be able to stop your mouth. What does it take to stop you? Now, I'll, I'll close with this. In reality, 
The question for the modern church isn't what it takes to stop you. The question is, what does it take to start you? So church, what what does it take to start you? May, May we wash ourselves in not just the memory of who we were and who he made us, but may we wash ourselves in the constant reminders that all we are is because of Jesus Christ. For me to live, it's gain. Let me try that again. For me to live, it's Christ. To die is gain. You know what that means? Your entire life is wrapped up in the gospel message, the good news shout that there is a champion who came and died for you. May we be obsessed with the gospel. All right, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is true and trustworthy. I thank you that in Christ we can have life, we can have abundant life, we can have full life. God, I thank you that in our darkest time, you rescued us and saved us. I thank you that on our worst day, you looked down and said, I'll take that one. God, help us to remember what Jesus did for us. Help us to be overwhelmed with who Jesus is. God, I pray that we would remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to live the life I couldn't live and then died the death I should have died. May we live lives that are obsessed with the gospel message that Jesus is the Christ. It's in his good name I pray, amen.